We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think about the Laker team now? You follow the box scores of the games every day? Just the Lakers. You're kidding. That is really a compliment. I was pleased to see you smile at the top of our show because once the game starts, you have a game face. You don't smile much out there. I don't think you have to do things for money anymore. Correct. What's up, Laker fans? Welcome to the Laker Film Room Podcast. And today we're talking some NBA draft where Lakers have their highest pick in a draft since 2017, the 17th pick. And today's guest, I remember one of the first times I was like, damn, this guy really knows his stuff about the draft, was in the 2005 draft, and it revolved around the 17th pick. He was a big uh, Danny Granger fan out of New Mexico. So <laughs> this was the year we had uh, the 10th pick. We ended up getting Bynum. It was a good pick, but uh, Granger became a future all-star out of New Mexico and uh, over many, many years, almost two decades now, has just nailed a whole bunch of uh, future draft guys, including Austin Reeves a couple years ago, miraculously. We are very honored to have back on the great Mike Garcia. You remember that draft, Mike, back in 2005? I remember that draft so clearly. I still remember my top three list and one of the number two guy, Fran Vasquez, stayed overseas. Right. And I mean, right. Never, never came over. That's right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and you knew I was a Danny Granger fan. I was like, the, the numbers are so good. How do you not pick this guy? And then he fell and became an eventual all-star. That's right. So, I mean, that's and why we like the draft. That's right. It's fun stuff. How, how do you feel about this draft, Mike? Where does the 17th pick in this draft relate to kind of a normal draft, do you think? So this draft in general is loaded with wing talent. Now, what makes it difficult is that there's a lot of different developmental areas for the wings in general. They're great at one thing, not so great at the other. So you're kind of banking on, hey, they have enough size to do this thing and be a productive player as they are developing. So when I look at different mock drafts, I see a wide range of guys and they have varied between 20 picks apart. I might like a guy at 15, same guy might be down in the 30s. So it's like that for this particular draft. And that's kind of what makes it exciting because the guy at 17 might be a guy that I like at the lottery. Love it. Love it. And there's always going to be somebody who falls, right? This is one of those places right. in the draft where you think, oh, this guy, no, this is a top 10 guy. And all of a sudden he's there at 17. That that happens uh, decently yes, enough to exactly. where it's exciting, right? And so let's get right. into it, man. You said the, the wings are really what stand out to you. Who's the first guy that comes to mind that's in the 17-ish range? So this particular player is actually mocked often in the late first round from most of the things that I've seen. But the guy I ranked highly is C.D. Sissoko. Mm -hmm. uh, just to make it easy, uh, he's roughly Jimmy Butler size. 
that's height, that's wingspan, uh, that's assuming standing reach. He's 225 pounds. He's, um, let's see here. I think he's like 19 years old and it was fairly, a fairly recent birthday. So he's very young. But what intrigues me about him is he shows the improvisational ball handling abilities. So when he sees a defense reacting in a certain way, he improvises very well and is able to evade the defense and at the same time make playmaking reads. And on the flip side of that, defensively, he's a really overtly physical player. Sometimes young players need to get over that hump of physicality to be more NBA ready. In his case, he's almost overbearing and overaggressive. That leads to some foul trouble. But, you know, when you're age 19, the size of Jimmy Butler, you're trying to create plays defensively, you might get into those fouls. And I think that's one of those small humps that he needs to get through. But if he can get through that and be an active pick and roll guy and make reads on both ends of the floor, I'm not as concerned about shooting. Shooting is a common thing to, to work on in the league. But get everything else right. And I think, okay, great. It's a two-way player. He could be a connector earlier. And then maybe he could be a future shot creator down the line. So tell me a little more about his ball handling, Mike. That's some that's an area that I think really distinguishes his type of player from like floor versus ceiling, you know? Um, and so so how real is his ball handling? I think I've talked with you before about how I like watching guards handle pick and roll situations. And it's not just the straight line drive or change of direction the first time and then do the straight line drive. It's, oh, here's a screen. The second defender approaches me. I'm going to change direction on this guy. And if there's a, another help defender, for whatever reason, I'm going to change direction on this guy and I'm going to end up at the cup. Mm. Well, in one particular case against the Stockton Kings, he had two screens. And this is going to be very difficult for me to describe, but I'm going to do my best. He gets the initial screen, sees the second help defender from the second screener. Second, the second help defender, he does an in-out crossover, so he evades him. And then there's the third defender, basically the paint guy. And then he, oh, no, no, actually, it's the original defender comes back to him. He crosses him, and then the paint guy is the third guy. And then he does a spin move and then ends up with the layup at the cup. Now, all of this happens within a five-foot radius. So imagine you're working in this tight operating space. The defense is reacting in a very specific way. And he does precisely the one correct thing to evade each guy to get all the way to the cup. Now, you can't teach that kind of ball handling instinct. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things. Oh, I teach a certain crossover. I know how to create space. Those are that's stuff that's taught by coaches. But when you see a player react in a certain way like that, especially through ball handling, I think that's a great sign for improvisational offensive and even defensive play. I love that example. That's that's very cool. I let's uh because we got a lot of guys to cover in this area. Yes, we do. <laughs> let's uh shift to a teammate of his, Leonard Miller, guy that Lakers had brought in, also from the G League Ignite. Ignite. Uh oh, well, I, that's a face. Uh, talk to me about Leonard Miller. So I know you remember way back when when we were all watching the draft together, and I was waiting for the second rounder, and I wanted the second round guy to be Jared Vanderbilt. Uh huh. Right? And back then in, in Kentucky, he was a high motor, great rebounder, defensive player. He just needed some, you know, development like players usually do. And now we see him as a Laker and he's this, to me, he's the Michael Cooper of the team, right? Mm -hmm. So Leonard Miller to me is Jared Vanderbilt, but he got the playmaking repetitions and not the defensive role. Oh, interesting. So now I'm watching a 19-year-old 6'10 player, 7'2 arms, He's got the length of a center. 
And on top of all that, not only does he have the ball handling ability and he likes pushing in transition, he's got unusually great hands. You know, he doesn't really know how to shoot outside of 15 feet. It's all touch. And yet he's amazing finishing at the rim. He's left-handed. He finishes right-handed and it looks dexterous. You know how you attack the rim and, you know, if it's, you're going on the left side, the left knee goes up with the left arm. And that's how you know you're leaning towards the rim. And the same goes for the opposite side. He does that. And on top of that, he has a high motor for rebounding. Now, with the G League Ignite, foul trouble is an issue. We see them develop, developing their offensive skills. But you see their defensive instincts, whether it's on help or on switches. And you know it's in there. And I think at the NBA level, you just need to see the structure and the timing of defensive play to actually get acted out. And then eventually that'll come inherent within the player. And then they become this great two-way player. So that's Leonard Miller to me. He's got just very unusual, but great athletic abilities, especially in terms of coordination. And it's hard to pass up on. So he's got the tools. He just doesn't really know what he's doing yet on the defensive end quite yet. I mean, they they do know, but you see it's half a second late. It's like mm. one of the, one of my points of emphasis for this particular year is not just physicality. I think physicality is a great way to look for NBA translation, but it's how well an NBA player is able to read the floor. Sometimes it's one end, sometimes mm-hmm. it's the other, sometimes it's both. There's no st- statistical outcome for that. I'm literally watching how do guys swivel their heads? Yeah. How well are they are they timing their movement? Are they a step ahead or are they a step behind? Yeah. Right, exactly. And when you're watching 18, 19, 20-year-old guys, they're all behind. Right? <laughs> sure, sure. And it's 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 just very difficult to get that to get to an NBA level, especially when it's another level in the playoffs. But if you're if a young player is showing me, hey, this guy wasn't taught that, but he made the rotation. Or not only was he on time, he was early. So he read it really early. Sissoko has done that. Leonard Miller has done that. That's why I believe in their, you know, future NBA potential. So one guy uh, will stick on wings that I think you believe in a little bit less, I think, uh, relative to consensus is uh, from overseas, Bilal Koulibaly. Now, little disclaimer, I know enough about these guys to carry a conversation, but Mike's the dude to listen to. But of the guys that caught that little like little blink uh, first impression on me, Koulibaly impressed me. And so reading what you had to say about him, I thought was super interesting. You're not as high on him. Talk to me. Okay, so Koulibaly is a very polarizing prospect for me. Now, you and I can go way back, and then I can mention Ruben Patterson, and you have a rough idea of who I'm talking about, right? Mm -hmm. So when I watched Koulibaly earlier this season, he did the exact same thing. It was He was a physical perimeter defender, and he loved attacking the offensive class. Okay. That's how I remember Ruben Patterson. When I watched Kulabali, he did the exact same thing. The difference to me is the level of defense in his current league isn't as high as say the G League Ignite or NCAA basketball, whatever it might be. So when he's attacking that offensive glass, it's uncontested. There are no guards getting in no one is getting in his way. And he's just getting to it. Great. And so he's also got really long arms. You know, he's like, I mean, I'm going from memory. He's roughly, as far as I'm concerned, he's 6'6 with a 7'2 wingspan. They're all, once you get to a certain wing size, they're all kind of like that. And because of that, he can impose with his length and not so much with the physicality. He doesn't have a strong chest, but he moves so quick laterally. And he's got such long strides in transition that I think he kind of overwhelms his current level of competition. Mm. 
right? So when I watch him play pick and roll, what do I usually read? He makes the first read and it's always the dive man, which is great. Okay. But is there a lot of ball handling dynamic? Not really. When I'm looking at his jump shot, I'm just looking for consistency. Remember, these guys are young. And sometimes I feel like I'm never watching the same jump shot twice. Mm. Or you can just watch the mechanics of the shot and, oh, that's a good one. And then you watch it the second time and the timing is just off. And that's not a good one. So if there's a team that's really able to work with him developmentally, I mean, the sky's the limit. But in regards for the Lakers' current situation, I think they're looking for, hey, can this player get a stint in the playoffs? Just one shift of eight minutes and just not be overtly negative. Can he provide something? And I'm not sure Kalibali is there yet. I mean, in terms of physicality, there's going to be a transition. There's going to be another transition in terms of um, kind of more dynamic play. He's just really good at the basics. And there's a lot that's very tantalizing about it especially in transition, but that's how I feel about Kolobali right now. Good stuff, man. And yeah, that was part of my impression from watching him was like, yeah, he's got the potential to really be something, but he wouldn't have the opportunity to develop that here with the Lakers. And he's going to be a guy that I think needs some PT and just some uh, experience in reps. Right. I mean, if there's an upside to that idea, I mean, South Bay is a great place to learn from. They see all levels of competition, including the G League Ignite. They have developed players in the past, especially guys like, Waba, Gary Payton too, Alex Caruso, and they're of that same mold. It's high motor, attack the glass, defensive players. Do they have a jump shot? No, not really. But they all became great NBA players who became critical on championship teams. And that's exactly kind of what you want. It's just a matter of how long. And we don't know that number. So sticking with the wings, uh, got two co- two for you. One that I think are specialists on each end of the floor, starting with Bryce Sensabaugh of all the guys that I watched. And I was very disappointed to turn to his defensive tape after watching his offensive tape first because I was like, this guy is a bucket, man. Got It reminded me a little bit of Chris Middleton in some ways, like Ohio State, really high scoring player. But yeah, there's some issues on the other end of the floor. What do you see from Bryce Sensabaugh? We see the exact same thing. For me, he's like the ISO king. And you know that basketball drill where you're only in the two or three dribbles and you get a shot? King of the court, yep. He's the king of that drill, right? Yeah. I know he's a three-level player. He will get exactly the shot that he wants. He will hit it at a high rate because that's within his comfort zone. So for a, a player that's a, a little bit bigger, you know, like he has really great body control. And I wish I saw something on the other side of the floor to be like, oh no, he can be, if he was just... A right. neutral, just just make some team defensive play. Just do a dig on a dribbler or a ball handler. Don't sink too deep when someone attacks. Don't make your closeouts a little too hard. Can you try to stay a little bit on balance? Just something like that. But I definitely understand how tantalizing a three-level score is yeah. and how important that is next level. It's, you know, we've talked about this before where, hey, can he shoot a three? Yes. Okay, well, if that's covered, can he attack the closeout? Yes. Well, he has all the shots within the closeout. Okay, can he finish at the rim? Well, I mean, I wish he was more explosive, but if he's 55 to 60 percent at the rim, I'm not going to be mad. Right. Especially right? relative to his his mid-range game and his, his outside game. Yeah. He's shown shooting. He's shown touch at all all areas of the floor, including extended NBA range. I'm not going to be mad at that. So it's, it's just the defense. And I know that's one of the more critical components for this particular Laker roster. You've talked about power and defense all season long. And I don't know if that biased my you know, my philosophy a little bit to what I look for for the upcoming draft, but it's certainly an identity that I like to see out of wing prospects in general. 
that was one thing, Mike, from looking at the prospects in this draft. I almost wanted to separate them into guys that I think are going to have eight to 10 year careers plus that are solid guys that like that dude's going to be in the league for a long time, but doesn't have like a standout skill. We'll get to some of the guards. There are a couple of the guards that, uh, uh, that stick out to me in that way too. Um, and then other guys that have like truly bankable, this guy's going to be good at this in the NBA. However, there are other things that, you know, that you need to hide him or he may not be able to overcome. Like even with Sensabaugh, he's got, seems to have kind of heavy feet for his size. So it's like, oh, you're kind of a four, but you need to guard like twos and threes. At, 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 anyway, uh, and, and maybe you can play him at a small ball four off the bench or something like that. But even then you got to be able to make rotations and stuff. So, it's hard, man, because he's such a good scorer that you really want to be able to have him out there. Right. You, you're leading on the points of why I tried to kind of amend my draft philosophy a little bit before it was, OK, focus on ball handling. Then instead, it just kind of became of uh, how do they read the offensive end of the floor, making additional reads and passing out of it and how quickly they do that. Then this year, it's more about the physicality and just making reads on both ends of the floor. Well, I know that Sensabaugh can make the reads on on the offensive end. But to me, he reads his defender, and mm. I don't know about him reading the guys behind him. Right. He's a one-on-one player, yeah. Right. So when I watch Sissoko, I know he makes that initial read a lot, but I think he has a clearer picture of, oh, it's the guy underneath the basket that I need to worry about, not just the guy in front of me. And so he can make the additional passes and the occasional advance pass to the corners, and that's why I like Sissoko so much. So kind of a mirror image of Sensabaugh, at least how I see it, a guy out of Alabama, Noah Clowney, who I think projects really well on the defensive end. I have a few more questions on offense. What do you see from him? We have a lot of commonalities in in how we're seeing things so far. So what I like about Clowney primarily is uh, his defensive ability. Uh, I do like his, uh, his rim protection, his perimeter defense. I mean, to me, he's the guy that, okay, I know I can read that defensive end of the floor and he could be solid on that end. And he's working on the one thing that will keep him on the floor on the offensive end, and that's the three-point shot. I don't expect him to attack closeouts. I expect him to be a lob target and make threes. And in a weird sense, you kind of see that link with Kolobali too, right? Mm-hmm. You know, with Kolobali, people think of perimeter defense. With uh, Noah Clowney, it's more of a little bit rim protection along with the perimeter defense. Mm-hmm. And, yes, there's absolute value in there, but, you know, I would I want that three-point shot. Or I want that something on the offensive end I can ha- hang my hat on. And sometimes when guys are 20, 30, low 30s percent, I need to find something else that they can do on the offensive end of, of the floor. And usually that will link to, oh, ball handling ability. Can he drive? Can he make the extra play? That kind of thing. So I like Clowney. I just have him ranked in the second round right now. And, you know, I, that kind of lines up with the draft philosophy this season. And then one more wing uh, before I'll open it up to you for anyone we haven't covered, but a guy we brought in out of Pepperdine, Maxwell Lewis. I'm not familiar with his game. Talk to us. So Maxwell Lewis is a guy that I've, I liked at the beginning of the draft cycle. Uh, usually I don't really start until April or May. And for whatever reason, in March, I'm watching this guy play against, you know, the college seasons, they start against lower level competition. And I'm watching him play. I'm like, oh, that's a catch and shoot three. Oh, that's an improvisational dribble on a drive. Oh, he's creating separation for his catch and shoot. Oh, he's uh, driving all the way to the rim. And like we said with uh, coordinated movements, when he he can finish with the left hand, the left knee is up, but it's the right hand, the right knee is up at the rim. He's comfortable at all three levels. And in this sense, I like the fact that he's better at attacking the rim over Bryce Sensabaugh. 
Sensabot is the kind of guy that loves that mid-range. I know my spot. I know the shot I'm getting. I'm going to make it. And with Maxwell Lewis, he has that extra bit of ability to get all the way to the rim. He likes to settle on his jump shot a little bit, but because of that improvisational handle and some degree of making that first read on the dump-off pass on a drive, I believe in his offensive potential so much more. Mm. So in the past, Maxwell Lewis would have been like, oh, he's a lottery guy. I believe in his offensive game. That's who he Mm. is for me. Wow. And then like Bryce, it's the defensive end where you want to see a player who's engaged on and off the ball. And with Bryce, it's on the ball. And with Maxwell Lewis, it's also on the ball. Now, as I've mentioned, oh, I'm looking for guys who can swivel their heads, pay attention defensively. And again, the engagement isn't always 100%. And NBA teams can just exploit that and just backdoor like crazy. Or you're pressing him too hard, I'm just going to backdoor you. Keep doing it over and over until you adjust. And I'd like to see that adjustment. If he makes even just that team defensive rotation, something that doesn't, you know, isn't too much of a liability, I really believe in his game. But in the meantime, I'm still relying on that two-way ability kind of even on both sides, both sides of the floor. Is there anyone wing-wise that we haven't talked about that you think is a candidate for 17? We'll talk about guards in a second, but anybody that you consider a wing that might be there uh, for 17? Um, One guy that's ranked a little bit lower, and I kind of understand why, but we haven't talked about Chris Murray a lot. Oh, thank you. He was supposed to be. Yes, thank you. So, I mean, with, with Keegan Murray, it was a lot more obvious about his slight movement shooting, his footwork prior to the shot, his shot prep, all the like, it was really to see all of that. Well, Chris Murray is left-handed, and for whatever reason, left-handed basketball players are different from right. Right-handed tend to be <laughs> more accurate with their catch-and-shoot, and left-handed players tend to be kind of slightly more dynamic off the dribble. With you know, ups. as a lefty, I can attest to this. More yeah. dynamically, mm-hmm. right? And so with Chris, like, I, he shot 33% behind the arc. I'm fine with that. He's more of a, a 4-3 kind of wing in the sense that he'll provide a little bit of rim protection. He's a little bit more comfortable in the post. Mm-hmm. But when he plays on offense, it's, okay, he's willing to shoot the three, and he doesn't hesitate at all, which is exactly what you're looking for. And then when he attacks a closeout, he's trying to get all the way to the rim. There isn't too much of that pull-up in-between game just yet. And in terms of defense, yeah, he can hold his own for a young – well, I think he's going to turn 23 soon. But he can hold his own – in terms of man defense and with team defensive principles that are more applicable. So when I think of, oh, I need a rotation guy as fast as I can, I think that's the kind of guy that people should think of. Good stuff, man. Uh, let's let's switch our um, our attention to the guards because it's funny. You you said that you know the wings really stand out to you in this draft. I actually think pretty highly of the guards uh, that I've seen so far. So there's my absolute dream. I haven't seen him in a single – mock fall to 17 but i want to speak it into existence just humor me on case and wallace for a little while man because i love me some case and wallace yeah uh, i think both you and i are case and wallace fans for the exact same reason we know he's a two-way player we know he's going to make his uh catch and shoot shots behind the arc we know not only is he a great man defender in terms of point of attack but he's able to size up defensively i think he's just he has a strong post base mm-hmm. and that's not always an easy athletic uh athletic attribute to actually see um there's to me there's an order of defensive play which is you know awareness feet chest then hands and kind of when you go in that order you prevent the foul dribble and then you're still able to be a defensive playmaker Kason wallace does that all the time i never worry about him and 
if he somehow fell to the Lakers, I, I don't care what the projected upside might be. I know that's at bare minimum, that's a three and D guard who's yep. able to just keep up athletically. And then there's enough mid range game and ability to finish at the rim for him to actually expand in game. Should he choose to do so? So yeah, I love Kaysong. He's great. So uh, speaking of mid-range game, Jalen hood Shafino out of Indiana. You wrote up a little piece about him. Uh, shout out to Jacob Brood. Um, but uh, he's another guy that I think projects as a – when I was talking about those guys that I think are going to have a good 8- to 10-year-plus career, I think that he's got a decent shot at, at that. Um, I have some questions about his offensive game, and I thought you made some interesting points about the big man screener that he has, who's another prospect in this draft. Um, but talk to me about, about Hood Shafino, because I think he's got some two-way play, but I have some skepticism as well. So so Jalen Hood Shafino to me is the you know, roughly six four guy, roughly six ten arms, um, kind of a shooting guard turning into a point guard. At least that's the impression that I get. And because of that, he has a really great pull-up mid-range game, and he's comfortable at at that level. That's the main part of his offensive game. And he's a young player who's, I think, still trying to figure out not just the initial rate, so he played alongside Trace Jackson Davis, who was, as you alluded to earlier, just great at screening and gave him all of the open shots, right? You know, TJD is the dribble handoff center king, and then um, Huchifino just had every pull-up mid-range shot that was wide open. Now, I see him more of as a two-guard than a point guard. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I believe in his mid-range game so much that I think it will expand to that three-point range. I understand that people look at shooting in terms of touch at the rim or free-throw shooting. To me, it's the mid-range game, especially when it's contested shots. And I think he's seen enough reps of that where it's like, well, he just needs to add just a little bit of something, and then that's contested three-point range, and it's not a problem for him anymore, right? I would like to see a little bit more athleticism towards the rim or a little bit more dynamic ball handling, whatever it might be. But at least on the defensive end, he does compete. He has the size to potentially be switchable. He tries to fight off screens. And there's a lot of high motor point of attack defenders that I wasn't anticipating until late in this draft cycle. And he's definitely one of them. So, I mean, that's what he is to me. Yeah, that'll keep him on the floor uh, right early uh, in his career is he's, you know, kind of a stout defender and he's not Wallace, but he's he's certainly got that element to his game. Um, I, I want to move on, uh, Mike, to two guys that they're my like 1A and 1B at 17. Uh, it's not at the wing spot. It's actually at the guard spot. Uh, first, Kobe Bufkin out of Michigan. Lefty guard. Could you imagine if we drafted a Kobe? This is Rob Polinka's, uh, you know, alma mater as well, right? I got to put this on the radar at least. But And they got two guys. We, we'll talk about another uh, backcourt mate, his. Um, but I like watching him. He's One of the things that really stood out to me is that He's got a really great shot fake and is we were talking earlier about that, like one step ahead versus one step behind. He's like shot fake and then is into the creation of the advantage off of the shot fake, like immediately off of that. And he's not like he's not a great jump shooter, but he's like a 70 percent finisher at the rim. I love how he finishes at the rim. He's got defensive ability. Uh, I'm really high on Bufkin. He's like one A, one B type of guy for me. Where are you at on him? Yeah, I'm equally as high on Kobe Bufkin. Really? Okay. Uh, when I wrote about him, I alluded to him like he's a wing player he's just a little bit smaller and you already pointed out like as soon as he does the shot fake he's already into the movement to create the advantage once again that's leaning to hey his first step is the left leg and then he's extending out with that side first and that's how he gets a step 
right? right, right it doesn't right. appear as first or a quick first step. It's just, I have the half step to full step advantage and I'm at the rim. And because of that extension, he has some ridiculous field goal percentage at the rim. It's like, I don't know, 70% something, maybe right. higher than that. Yep, yep. So when I see that, I'm like, oh, he's a wing. He's just 6'4", 180 or whatever it might be, mm. right? That's what mm-hmm. I see. But when also when I'm looking at guards, it's, hey, does he have shake? Does he create shots like Sensabaugh where he's creating a 15-footer? Or is he going to try to you know execute pick and roll all the way to the rim? And then to me, it's just like, he's a great complimentary guard early on who can really expand his game later because of his ability to finish at the rim. He shot really well towards the end of the season from three point range and actually, you know, hit that 40% mark for a good strong period. So the shot is believable to me. Mm. And the only part is like we lined up with, um, you know, team identity. We like physical guards. We want, we want guards who can set screens. I want to punish mm-hmm. a dude. Yeah. You know, if there's a six, five to six ten guard out there, Great. We'll pretend he's a four, right? And set a screen and dive to the basket <laughs> sure. and all that stuff. Buffkin is, you know, roughly 180 to 190 pounds. So his game is going to be perimeter oriented yes. early on. But defensively, he still has motor. He's a great point of attack defender. He tries to fight off the screens as best as he can for now. Um, he anticipates, you know, he gets a lot of ball handling deflections and all the other stuff. So he's a great two way player. It's also why I think, I don't think he'll slip to the pick, unfortunately. I, I don't either. Yeah. Right. So we're seeing the same guys and we're lining up a lot. It's just like, well, this guy slipped to 17. Please. Yes. That'd be great. That's the thing is like a lot of the guys that I like the most, it's like, I think like maybe one or two of these guys are actually going to get to us. Right. But it's, it's fun. It's fun to speculate. Now, one guy, I think that we're, we may diverge on a little bit. Like you said, we've seen a lot of things similarly, but one guy that I think I'm a little higher on than you is Jordan Hawkins. And I'll give you my argument for why is it starts with, I think he's good enough defensively to stay on the floor. And this is a guy that can run all day, Mike. Like the way UConn, I used to run a lot of Jay Wright stuff when I coached. And they've even built off of it now to where they run so many damn set plays. It's unbelievable. This dude runs all day off of screens, can knock down threes off of a bunch of different types of footwork, really quiet and consistent mechanics up top with his shooting stroke. And competes defensively. He's in the right spot a lot. Now, he's not very big. He's not a great athlete. But he's, I think, one of the best shooters in the draft in the last few years. Again, this is my uh, blink evaluation. But I think he's good enough to stay on the floor on defense. And he's so good as a shooter that I'm I'm pretty high on him. Yeah, I mean, we see the same thing. The, the only difference with, winds up with the draft philosophy thing where I'm looking for that physicality. And that's pretty much it. For sure. I, I wish he was somehow more of a rim threat and yet somehow that's not his game right ray allen was good enough to attack the rim but he was a primarily a jump shooter and he made a long lengthy you know all-star career out of it Mm -hmm. and when i see hawkins it's like okay this guy's gonna be great 15 feet and beyond and i think that includes both ends of the floor and i shouldn't expect much in terms of any kind of physicality with rim protection or defensive switches if he happens to play in the post or that kind of thing so in my mind it's he's this great two-way player who knows exactly who he is. And the only other question mark I have left is, can he get those same shots off of NBA contests? Now, Mm. we look at wing movement shooters. And Mm -hmm. when we see wing movement shooters, whether it's, I mean, Duncan Robinson is the the one that comes clearest to mind. 
but I always find that they're shooting slightly off balance and contorted, and they still need to be almost a half a foot taller to get the shot off with mm-hmm. accuracy. Right. And so when I see Jordan Hawkins, I'm like, oh man, that guy, he could shoot, you know, slightly contorted, a little bit under contest, all this other stuff. Can he get that shot the next level? And for 47, there's another guy I like who can do that a little bit. Ooh, okay. That's kind of what I'm hoping for. All right. But yeah. There are a lot of players within that 17 pick range, whether it's wing or a guard, there's a lot to like. Yeah. And yeah. in terms of Jordan Hawkins case, it's, oh, I know who I'm getting and he's going to mean lights out when we get him shots and he's yep. going to provide something defensively. So we can roll with that and work with it. And that's part of why I think you make a good point that he's not that, you know, Duncan Robinson size type of guy that, and a lot of times you got to contort a little bit to get those shots off. To me, just having that type of gravity that Hawkins ha- has, you are going to have to guard him, right? And if you don't, and this this is very much coming from somebody who's watched Anthony Davis and LeBron James at the 4-5 and attracting all that attention where it's like, if there's just some sort of counter gravity, like that would be great, you know? Um, and speaking of taller shooters, Kobe Bufkin's teammate at Michigan, Jet Howard, son of the coach, Jawan Howard. Uh, there's, it, it's easy to watch him shoot sometimes, man, and be like, oh, that looks like another son of a former NBA player that's a little bit of a taller shooter, you know? And so talk to me about, a, about Jet Howard and his shooting ability and some of the downsides that come with him. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. So, so Jet Howard kind of lines up to me with guys like Bryce Sensabaugh too. 
Um, Bryce sets the ball, like we've talked about earlier, is that, is that, you know, ISIL two, two to three dribble kind of threat. Jet Howard, he flies off screens too. And he doesn't always get the best screen and he's still able to get good shots well, off. And he's like six, eight, six, nine. Like this is a big dude doing that. Yeah. And, and one of the things I try to pay extra attention to was the kind of shot release. Not all these guys have the same shot release, right? Like when I played basketball and I shot the ball, it was off the middle finger. When I watched Scotty Pippen, it was a middle finger kind of shot release. When I watched Jet, it's two or three and it's off the index and the middle finger. Mm-hmm. And not all not all players make that kind of adjustment really well. Sometimes they miss terribly and then sometimes they're incredibly accurate. And I think he just kind of got over the hump. You know, now it's just a matter of, okay, can he be physical? Can he play up to his size? Can he rebound a little bit? Can he... Can he do something defensively that yeah, affects the guard? Side? I've been talking a lot this year about like high center of gravity versus low center of gravity. I'm very much in my give me a fire hydrant, you know, Bruce Brown, Josh Hart type of uh, mindset. And Howard is the opposite of that. Really high center of gravity, right? And that's part of my concern is he's not a physical defender, which I think you need to be if you're going to be like that. But the high center of gravity, difficult to keep up with guys on the perimeter when you're like that. Yeah, it, it definitely comes up. I mean, there's another player like at 47 who's kind of the opposite, and he's also a guard. But in in Jet in Jet Howard's case, he provides the exact shooting talent I know the Lakers are looking for. Something that's highly coveted across the league. It's hey, he can pull off off the dribble. He can hit the dive man if he starts handling the ball a little bit. He can fly off screens and he's green catch and shoot. What am I missing here? Well, that's operating 15 feet and beyond, and that's who he is. He is a gravity shooter. And it's a dynamic kind of gravity shooter that every team kind of needs. Now it's just a matter of please be able to stay on the floor and affect something defensively because I don't want to see this guy repeatedly attack. I mean, all these all these guys are they're all rookies, and you know we know the NBA is a competitive league. But I liked it when even Reeves, as a older college prospect, was able to just fight. Right? We've seen Max Christie; he's in a smaller frame, and yet we see him defensive rebounding, and he's contesting as hard as he can. Mm-hmm. I'm looking for that. Yeah. So, you know, that's what I'd love to see out of all of these guys. So let's shift to a guy who was, I think, more well-regarded before the beginning of the season. That's Nick Smith Jr. out of Arkansas. Kind of what's the story of his season? I know he's one of those guys that has tantalizing ability, but also some downside to him. With Nick Smith Jr., I've kind of gone back and forth all season on him. And the primary reason is he's a three-level player, too. And he gives the appearance of like a, a tall, kind of longer wingspan guard with the ball handling to get the shot that he wants all the time. But when I see him attack, he's not bumping, he's not using the shoulders. Or when he's getting attacked defensively, he might be in a stance, and yet there isn't as much resistance against people driving against the rim against him. So just for that, it's there's such a high level of threshold for guards in general. The guard talent in the NBA is so high. I think there are NBA players that are in the G League right now that should be in the league and they're just not in because it's so deep, right? So in Nick Smith's case, it's, hey, we need to build some sort of interior defense in case there's a a coverage here because otherwise we have a three-level scorer and he can make every single shot, right? And I know he's great in catch and shoot. I know he's great at that one-two-two dribble pull-up and once again, tantalizing shooting skills. I would love to see him get at the rim and somehow you know, initiate the contact against a big against a rim or something like that. So that's kind of where I am with Nick Smith. I like it. Now, is there, are there any other guards? Whitehead out of Duke, maybe we'd consider him a wing. I don't know if uh, where you're at with him, but I think we brought him in. Where, where are you at with him? Oh, Dariq Whitehead. Yeah, Dariq so Whitehead. I'm really risk adverse when it comes to prior injury players. And when it comes to certain guys, I hope that 
certain teams are just kind of willing to give a pass for a year off as they get bigger and gain more NBA strength. This happened to Joel Embiid, and now he's got a long NBA career. This happened to Ben Simmons, and I mean, he started his career off really well. And I would want the same for Dariq Whitehead. Now, with Dariq, he's a great pull-up three-point shooter, and he hits under every single contest, especially from catch-and-shoot. And then when I watch high school footage, he looks kind of great on the drive, and it's literally the amount of quickness, speed, and force, especially in transition when he's attacking the rim. And it's like his body is ahead of his ball handling ability right now. So I think the thing that he's best at right now is kind of that short range, okay, catch and shoot three contested, no problem. If I need to sidestep this catch and shoot three, no problem. If I need to, you know, take a back step into a catch and shoot three, that's not a problem. But there's a lot of athletic attributes to work on. At the same time, he has that capability defensively. He is of wing size. He is that strong. He can move that quickly. It's not difficult to see him be an effective man defender. Now it's let's get him healthy. So to get to a baseline and then develop him after. And then after that, the sky's the limit. So that's Dariq. Love it. Let's talk about his teammate. Uh, One of the, I think maybe the only big man that is in our area, right? And that's Derek Lively, another guy who was very well regarded prior to the draft. Started a a little bit slow. I think he had an injury as well. And then really picked up and then had a workout uh, recently where, you know, we saw that video of him knocking down corner threes. He's got some stretch ability. I think he projects really well as a rim protector. That's his central skill. I'm super intrigued by his ability to kind of move them puppies on the perimeter and switch and still like hang with the guys like if you can get a really high-end rim protector who can also do that there's this idea i think over the last few years that's developed that like oh fives are kind of like the running back of the nba where like you could just sign a five and sign anyone and then but i'm looking around the league and then in this lakers situation where it's like we could really use another big guy next to anthony davis if you look at the actual guys that are gettable there's not a lot of them so there's a potential shot that first off lively isn't even on the board by the time 17 comes around but uh He's a guy that I think would have a role from from day one. So talk to me about uh, Derek Lively. So Derek Lively, to me, I needed to see the prototype of Miles Turner. And remember how yep. who Miles Turner was as a prospect before I thought of Derek Lively too. And Derek Lively is literally a lob threat and catch and shoot three-point guy. Yep. And that's it. Yep. Right. When I watched Miles Turner, he shot a bunch of long twos and it was soft touch, high arc and some some softer shots around the rim. Now, Derek Lively isn't really a post player. He's just a finisher. I don't expect him to make reads. I know he's at the rim. Go get it. If the shot's coming to you in the corner and you're open, take the shot. And that's pretty much it. But the more intriguing part about his game is he has just enough on offense to stay on the floor. But defensively, can he flatten out on that hedge on pick and roll? Right. Mm-hmm. I don't expect a center to press a guy. Right. That'd be great. But right. just don't hit, have him turn just, the corner on you. Yeah. Yeah. Meet the screen, widen out that drive a little bit, buy some time for the defense to react and be great. If you're in drop coverage, do you have enough length or, and or quickness slash footwork to con- contest a shot when the guy pulls up from mid range? I think he has seven, six arms. Yeah, I'm not worried about it. Like he's got a standing reach of like nine foot three. And the thing that I like most is. When I watch him play defense, he's not just watching the ball handler and contesting for the shot. He's mindfully aware of, hey, this guy, this ball handler has got a teammate on this side and this side too. And it's almost like he's anticipating it. So when that pass is coming to the teammate, oh, this is a block shot. This is not a problem. 
and then it's a blockchain on this other side. It's also not a problem. So this is this is you know we're talking two way starting center, assuming everything works out right. Now it's just foul trouble. Right. Yeah, he's like, and, and that's something too that maybe a good coach gets to that, but that guy's gonna he averaged like eight fouls per like hundred possessions or something. Like he only played about half the game at, at Duke, you know, and he's consistently kind of has his body turned in ways yeah. where like guys are gonna eat you up on the NBA level. So despite the great rim protection, there's like positional like that's coachable, I think, mostly, but it's also kind of odd that at this level he i don't know he's got a little goofiness to him and uncoordinated do you see that too where it's like yeah. i think like he'll be coachable in that respect but i also see him being a foul trouble guy for like the first several years of his career yeah i mean when i first started watching him in a in a weird way because you were relating to uh defensive positioning and how and how guys kind of contort for blocking shot the first thing i thought of was javel mcgee yes right? that's perfect yes where he's this wildly you know athletic he's got great stretch flexibility all sorts of other he has an unusually high block rate why is he getting so many fouls and it's because every guy who's attacking the rim comes at you at, at sorts of different angles and they use different tools whether it's footwork the shoulder they jump into your chest whatever it might be and then on top of that if you're a defensive player who's trying to protect the rim and you're a bit just a little bit jumpy it's a foul yeah. so verticality and that kind of defensive positioning is so important We've seen the polar opposite and say like Brooke Lopez, where he's not going to be a vertical guy, but the position is so well, well handled. And then he's, I mean, he's got a big frame, so it's a rim contest. It doesn't have to be a block. And the, at, I love to see that, but that foul trouble hurdle is a common thing that I'm coming across all of these players. And I mm. think it's easier for guards than wings. And I think mm -hmm. it's easier for wings than centers. And that's just literally the line of, okay, who's going to be in foul trouble? What kind of issue is it? Is it translatable and fixable early? Why or why not? So I like Lively at that 17th pick a lot. There's just some things to work on for him to see on the floor. For sure. Is is there anyone else at that 17th pick that we haven't discussed that you think should be in the conversation? So one of the guards I like from Santa Clara is Brandon Podziemski. Mm, okay. Mm -hmm. So when I speak to his physical tools, it's not going to sound impressive, right? He's 6'4 as a guard. Great. And then his standing reach is eight foot and his wingspan is roughly six, five, six, six plus. Okay, great. What I like about him is his three point shooting ability. And I don't worry about it where even when he's this small, he's able to finish at the rim at 60%. I think I've seen every single kind of contested mid range shot that he's ever taken. And he's like 43% there, 44% behind the arc, all contested. And then 77% free throw. Right. So and then not just contested shots because he's already, you know, a little bit smaller point guard. It's, oh, is that shot in transition? Oh, no problem. I'm going to make a pull up three in transition. And because I know I can, he's that kind of level of shooter. And I, I wish I remembered who tweeted this out. But I read a tweet just a, a day or two ago where there are only two guards uh, that have shot minimum 250 attempts over 40 something percent and then 150 attempts behind the arc over 40 something percent with a 2.5% two steal rate. And the guard one is Stephen Curry. And then the second guard is Podziemski. And it's just like, wow, okay. Right. So, so then the other part is, okay, if he's a smaller guard, can he play up to his physicality? And then I can at least say yes, because at least 
he'll try to rebound. He's not a box out guy. And somehow at Santa Clara, he was able to get about nine, 8.8 or nine rebounds a game in 36 minutes. Mm. And that's a guy who's chasing rebounds, but you can't teach those for the ball. And that matters. And we stink at long rebounds, man. Like that type of rebounder that remember how Rondo used to rebound when he was at his best, right? Where it was like, he's getting 14 rebounds a game and anything that bounced, you know, 10 feet plus away from the rim, that was Rondo's that belonged to him. Cause he was, he was taking that step or two as the ball's in the air, kind of understanding the angle. So I love guards that can rebound and Lord knows it's something we need. It's really asking a lot for guard defensive stoppers. And we think of defensive positions like, can you do this thing? Can you do this thing? Can you do this thing? Sometimes I just need a guard to end the possession. And that's yeah. that's every bit as important as everything else. Yeah. Otherwise, you're repeating the same defensive problems right. under more compromise. And then you're giving up a bucket because it's an offensive rebound give. Right. So that's who Podziemski is as a shooter. And he's really crafty. He's not quick. He's not fast. You, If you want to make... Nash-like comparisons because he's a high-motor guy who uses a lot of steps to get to the rim, and then he's a three-level guy with all of that gravity. Now, I understand the risk of physicality physicality and athleticism, but at a certain point, it's just, okay, well, this is a draft. These are these abilities. This guy can clearly do these specific things. I want that, and I think that'll make for a 10-year career. That's a guy who's worth looking at. Good stuff, man. Let's transition to the second round. I have one guy to ask you about just because I, I, and I don't think he's going to be there at 47, but I watched this guy and I'm like, this might be the best perimeter defender in the draft. Jordan Walsh out of Arkansas. I really dig him defensively. I think he's a guy that can guard like at the highest levels eventually in his career. 19 year old, never seen another dude that looked like Charlie Villanueva, but he somehow does. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, he can, but yeah, man, this guy can light up the ball on the perimeter. Talk, tell me about Jordan Walsh. So I go back and forth on Jordan Walsh because I love the way he plays defense and it's very fundamental. I know yeah. he, he's got the defensive motor on man defense. I know he's got the yes. awareness uh, on team defense. He knows just enough to attack the glass and end the possession defensively. Great. Now it's the offensive end where yeah. <laughs> in high school, he's getting more initiating reps. And at least he was making the initial reads, especially in transition and being a ball handler. And when I'm watching him on offense, it's just, I know the the shooting isn't great and that's fine because he's, I think he plays such a high level defensively. Like there's only so many things for a young player that he can work for on. Sure. If you're going to be this good at defense, something's got to give on the other side of the floor. Mm-hmm. And he lines up with the physicality along with the awareness on both ends, right? So now it's just, can you just become a three-point threat? I know you know how to make the pass, especially a skip pass or be a connecting piece. But if you're a wing and you're not a gravity threat, you're a four. Yeah. Right? That's kind of, And in his case, it's kind of okay because mm-hmm. he has a standing reach of like, I think it's eight foot 11. Yeah, he can defend and, the position. I, I just remember it being yeah. power forward size. I'm like... Okay, if you can do that, and I know you can hold your own defensively, and I think mm-hmm. you're fine on switches, and you're not going to be like an issue on that end of the floor. Like I think, I think veteran players respect that, especially with higher motor players who don't give up. Mm-hmm. And I don't always think that people think that's the way to getting playing time on the floor. For sure, it's like, look, you just need to finish. That's fine. We'll do everything else on this end of the floor, but don't make me have to do things out of the context of what we do defensively as a whole. Right. If if you're not the, you know, the crack in the armor. Great. We can we can be neutral or even be positive on the side of the floor. Yep. All right. Well, thank you for humoring me on on Walsh. Uh, Let's get to your guys, man. Who are the guys that you're thinking about at 47? So one of the guys who has a slim chance of falling to 47 is uh, Seth Lundy. 
and he kind of exploded at the combine with his three-point shooting. And I know we had mentioned before about how, hey, wing shooters, they have to contort and still hit, or they have to be slightly off balance and they hit. Mm-hmm. Well, during the combine footage, he did all of that. Slightly off balance, slightly contorted, right shoulder lean, left shoulder lean, coming off the screen, catch and shoot straight up. Everything looked on balance and great. And he was a, I think he was a 40% arc shooter. Now, I'm not expecting much because it's the 47th pick. So he's a 6'4 guy, 6'10", 6'11", arms, just enough reach to be impactful defensively. And usually when you see a shooter who's a little bit more tenured, you want them to play to a certain level of physicality. I think he's enough to provide a step or two of resistance against drivers. And then outside of that, like that's where the team help is needed. But these are the kind of role players that, hey, we have one franchise player on the floor because we're in the middle of the substitution periods of second and third quarter. I need someone to space a gun, just just compete defensively. Seth, right? I need to rest on offense a little bit. Let's give him a couple screens and then open himself up. That's that's who I think he is as a shooter. So I'm a big fan of Seth Lundy altogether. Um, a couple, we'll mention a couple UCLA guy because, you know, people <laughs> uh-huh. ask. Amari Bailey, I don't know if you've seen any of him. I haven't. Okay, so left-handed, uh, 6'3", 6'4", guard, 6'7", arms. Doesn't seem like a long wingspan until you realize the standing reach is 8 foot 7 and a half, and you're like, why is the standing reach so much? Right. So then you're looking at him, and you're like, does he have, like, short legs and a, an usually long torso? <laughs> and that was my first guess. Yeah. And I've seen a few clips where he gets switched on defensively and people try to post him, and he can test really well. And it's like... Wait, is he a switchable guard against a bigger wing? This is oh. kind of what I'm looking for, right? I like it, yeah. So he's more of, I, he leans more of a shooting guard than a point guard in the sense that if he's going to run pick and roll, he's going to like that pull-up jump, shirt, uh, jump shot from mid-range, 39% there. I think he's 39% behind the arc, once again, going off of memory. And then the other important part is more than 40% of his shots, total shots are at the rim which tells me something about his engagement on and off the ball, right? It's like, hey, I'm off the ball. I know when to cut and I can get a shot at the rim. Hey, I have enough ball handling craft. I may not be a super athlete, not a bad athlete. He's actually a really good one, but I can find my way to get to the rim and create something. Now, in terms of reads, he can make that first read, occasionally the second, and then the advanced one obviously is more advanced. But when you're looking at such a young guard who's able to be switchable, it's like, I like him a lot. How is he going to fall to this pick? And you realize, hey, the depth of this draft is so deep. It might actually happen. Right. And then one more player, um, uh, Jaime Jaquez out of UCLA too. Mm-hmm. Um, I was initially high on him too because I felt he was a player who was playing out of context of his game, meaning he was a tenured player who was the number one guy on his team. So he was asked all of the playmaking responsibility, right? But when I see him play, he reminds me of Rick Fox in the sense that mm-hmm. you need a role player who's going to be physical mm-hmm. and then just be smart mm-hmm. and not create turnovers and take good shots and be a good team defender. Now, in Jaime's case, he has unusually good touch from mid-range all the way up to the cup. He's really good at those shots. He's roughly a 30% arc shooter, and it's kind of been like that for the past three years. I think it's developable. This just shot rests to me. But... It's a guy who processes and sees like, oh, this teammate's cutting, pass. Oh, I need the, I need to rotate defensively, switch, and this is going to happen. This is great because you're looking for that rotational role player and he might be a little bit shorter or at least he has some size and strength to kind of compensate for it. 
But that's also another kind of role player that you're looking for. In the end, what is, uh, let's say, Kenrick Williams, right? Who is he as a role player? He's a three-point shooter and he's a team defender. Well, if Hawkes can get the three-point shot going and he's actually better attacking the basket and he can process both ends of the floor, he's a rotation player. There's a role for you. Yep. So... You know, those that that's my case for both uh, Hawkes and uh, Mari Bailey. Mike, this was a ton of fun. Thank you so much for how thorough and in-depth uh, your knowledge is, man. And please uh, share with, with everyone where they can find your work. Sure. Uh, you can find me at Canyon Driver on Twitter or at LakersShaft.substack.com. Uh, it's mostly seasonal. I only really make posts for about three or four months out of the year. But when I do make my posts, it's basically at the peak of draft season. and I've seen a lot of new subscribers and a lot of people reading it. I really do appreciate it. I'm just here to kind of share the game and share the enthusiasm I have for basketball. Great stuff. Aren't we all? I, I love it, man. That's why we've been talking hoops for 20 years now, so or almost. All right. This is a lot of fun. You've been listening to the Laker Film Room Podcast. We'll catch you guys next time. James has got it in low to McHale. McHale wants to turn his double team. Just pass out of front. Broken up by Worthy. Tip to Magic. Worthy dies on his belly. Magic scores. There's Magic got it. Magic fires, it's good, and the Lakers win the game! The Lakers win the game! Rebound is lying, three seconds left, that next to the winner, it's on the way, good! Kobe Bryant, 48 points, 16 rebounds, with his eighth block shot that ties an NBA Finals record. A lot of Laker fans okay, sticking so around for this. You're seeing something that's very rare indeed. A Laker to get MVP chance right, in, Boston. in Boston. Of all places. Are you kidding me? Kobe. Hard to believe. Are you kidding me? Unreal. Are you kidding me? Lakers looking to push. Bryant spinning in the lane. Back for Gasol. Pretty pass. And it's back to a three-point game. Kobe Bryant picked up by Bell. There's the move. Two. Listen. It's over. Shot clock out of five. Bryant. Yes. And that was a little tough to Albert Gentry. Add insult to injury, Kobe. I mean, what a shot. I mean, you can't defend that. Are you kidding me? 2.1 seconds remaining. Denver a foul to give. Jokic trying to disrupt Rondo. He puts it in. Here's Davis. 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good. Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers. James again. Oh, he hits another one. LeBron James putting together a closing quarter against the Nuggets. This historic 2020 NBA championship belongs to the Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers conquer the bubble, and banner number 17 will soon hang in the rafters.